Hello, and welcome to this special crossover episode of Your Future Self Will Thank You podcast. Over the past several episodes, Drew and I have talked quite a bit about the brain science of self-control. For those of you who want to go even deeper into brain science from a distinctly Christian perspective, we think you'll enjoy hearing my conversation with Dr. Jim Wilder, a neurotheologian, and with Michael Hendricks, a spiritual formation pastor. This particular episode is on how God designed the different hemispheres of the brain to function, and the surprising insights that gives us into how we become more like Jesus. This is episode three of the Other Half of Church podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, please subscribe to the Other Half of Church podcast. You can find a link in the show notes. And now, here's episode three, Right Brain, Left Brain, and why it matters for the church. Welcome to the Other Half of Church podcast, a podcast at the intersection of brain science, theology, and church life. With Michael Hendricks and Jim Wilder, we explore the brain God has given us and what we need for a healthy, transformational community of faith. In our last conversation, you presented the idea that there are two halves of the brain that work together, a master system and a slave system. Now, I've always heard that there is a left brain and a right brain. What I've always heard about the brain is that there's a left brain and a right brain. And if I remember correctly, left brain people are logical, rational, they're usually good at math, and the right brain people are the artists and the creatives and... They, you shouldn't trust them with a spreadsheet. Now, I'm assuming there's a little bit more going on there. Can you can you help me understand what you meant with master and slave systems and processors and all of that? Yeah, the um, cultural understanding, again, began long before we actually had scans of what the brain is like. And so we, what you have is people with strokes and, and uh, brain injuries and uh, like the group I trained with at the VA, a lot of them had run into a telephone pole on a motorcycle going too fast and it wrecked one part of their brain. And you'd begin to see certain functions that decreased. So um, a social idea grew up that, uh, oh, there's this creative, wonderful stuff on the right side of the brain. So even in the pictures, they bright, bright colors and then the, the left side of the brain is black and white, and it does all of this a- analytical stuff, you know. And uh, so that those terms have their own cultural value, you know. To be right-brained is to be creative, but it actually doesn't work that way in the brain. First thing we have to distinguish is that um, most of what happens in the brain happens in almost all of the brain together. It's, it's actually hmm. designed to work together. So a much more accurate term would be dominant. When everything's working together, who's in charge of this part of the function? And the right brain is dominant for some things. They're mostly nonverbal and they have to do with identity. Who am I now? And how would my people handle the this, this moment in time? And this mm. moment in time is divided up in 
six times per second. So you have to answer that question six times a second. That's the fast track of the brain. It's clicking along, um, answering who am I and what do I want to do right now six times a second. Uh, the, but that's in charge of it. The information and the understanding is spread all, all around the place. Uh, but this is the kind of who's consolidating that information and getting, uh, um, you know, the, the kind of the final product. And most of us are familiar that with that and even businesses and stuff like that, you know, the whole business is involved in something, but different departments consolidate, you know, part of the function, you know, and, and, we get this part of the job done and then we shift it over to someone else. So when I've answered the question, who am I and what would my people do right now? Which also gives us a hint that the right part of the brain is looking for examples, not for ideas. Hmm. So I have, haven't most of us said one time or another about our father and mother, when I grow up, I'm never going to do that. Mm -hmm. And then had the reaction happen that, what just came out of our mouth or popped into our head was sounded just like my father or mother or whoever we were never going to uh, imitate. Sometimes it feels like we speak before our rational side is even aware of it. Exactly so, because this six cycles per second runs faster than the conscious left side uh, that runs at five cycles per second. It runs slower. Mm. So five times per second, I become aware of what's happening. But my right brain has already sent out a reaction to life before my left brain even knows that life is happening. So we're always catching up on this system. It's always running slower. And the left brain makes um, a couple of interesting uh, assumptions, you might say, or it's designed to look at the world in, in a certain way. It ought, first of all, it never tries to look at the the right brain and see if my identity has it right. It just always assumes mm. that whatever my identity uh, has concluded must be the right thing to do. So, uh, but then it looks to see did that create a problem. Hmm. And very often we just created a problem with what we did. And now the, the right brain or the servant system, the slower system has to focus down on that problem, figure it out and decide what are we going to do about this specific little problem. So the, the, the left brain system that runs slower is always too focused to take in the whole picture, but it's focused enough mm. to figure out how do we untangle this particular problem. Uh, and so it's very good for problem solving and procedures. And part of the problem solving and procedures is how would I put this into words? How would I describe this? Uh, how does, how would I explain this? And, um, you know, how does that fit into my, my beliefs and the things that have been taught about the world? So, most of the things that we think about as education or even thought is in the slower system because it's the one we can mm -hmm. watch. Uh, most of what we talk about as character and our reaction is in the faster system, but it's also mm -hmm. a form of thought. And uh, in this bigger picture, we see a lot of uh, opportunities that we weed through. And so it does lead to creativity because it's looking at more 
it kind of takes the whole picture in and say, what can I do with this whole big thing that would be what my people like to do with it? And um, we always use our people as a reference over there. And the other side, what do my beliefs have to do with it? And how would I explain this according to my beliefs? Uh, mm -hmm. So they're both very, very important functions. Uh, but one based on answering the question, who am I and what would I, my people do right now? We sort of assume consciously that we always know that, mm -hmm. but we actually don't. It's because consciously, every time we're conscious, the faster track has already come up with an answer. Hmm. But it has to figure it out over and over again, given this moment, who am I now and what examples have I been given? So if we got Jesus in as one of the examples of my people, here's what my people do. All of a sudden, when we're looking at those options, we're thinking, oh, well, Jesus would do this because we've experienced him as one of our people. Mm -hmm. um, it becomes part of our initial responses to things. Um, and so, uh, I mean, a couple of ways in which we see this happening um, is when we have a baby or when we make friends, we take somebody who previously meant nothing to us or we'd never seen before in the case of a baby mm -hmm. being born. And upon seeing them, they take on a, a profound kind of significance to us mm -hmm. um, that never changes. You know, it might grow, but that profound impact that comes from someone being your child or your, your friend lasts with you the whole rest of your life. And it, it changes how you respond to that person every time you see them. Um, and just, you know, it, it's what we would call character. You know, we call love or attachment or something like that. Uh, and how we explain that to others, uh, you know, that, uh, that's a whole lot more flexible. You know, we might not say something to somebody or, you know, we, all of the things on the on the slow track can be edited to make them look the way that we want to. So we we often have what Dallas again called image management. We're trying to control what people think we who how they look at us, who they think we are, through our conscious thoughts and words and stuff like that. We're managing an image when inside we we feel like that. Well, that's really not who I am. Hmm. So a Christian character change has to actually integrate those two. And the only way to do that is to change the fast track so that we authentically begin to respond differently than we did before. I see the need to transform the fast track, but it also seems very opaque. My conscious thought responds to it more than it can control it. How do you actually get a window into what your right brain is doing so that you can change it? Well, um, I would say that just knowing that there's two different processors going on, and that's one of the things we mentioned in uh, uh, Marcus Warner, Dr. Warner and I, in a previous book, um, the the idea of, the, of rare leadership is that we begin to realize we are forming an identity in relationship to others. And mm. if we're in a group that looks at how do we treat each other, how do we respond to each other? Um, and that's part of how we, we talk to each other. We'll actually learn to observe this 
it's actually a little easier to observe than others. We probably all noticed that, that uh, when somebody else isn't acting or feeling or responding the way they should, uh, we can easily notice that mm -hmm. inconsistency in them much more easily than in ourselves. Um, so uh, if we begin to share that, with each other, we develop an awareness. Now, the second question is, what do we do with that awareness? Uh, mm. Do we attack each other when we see an inconsistency? Or do we uh, pray our way into that to say, what what do we need to learn about uh, what God is teaching us about being a people when I see your weakness? And every culture in the world despises weakness. So every culture will teach you to hide your weakness and to attack it if you see it in uh, yourself or others uh, because it's not desirable. So mm -hmm. Christian groups have to actually have a place where confession uh, becomes not just a way to say, oh, look how bad I am, but to say, look, I have a weakness in my character here where I, would, I need to have more of Jesus' presence. Um, and I need some other examples that show me you know, maybe where I have a weakness, uh, you are much more able to respond the way Jesus does. So let me, you know, share with each other, how do we handle difficult situations? I think that's what used to be meant by testimonies, that mm. we tell each other how we handle difficult situations. But, um, you know, they, they've become so stereotyped uh, that I don't even think they're much in use anymore. Mm -hmm. Um so we're not really learning from each other. Uh, we're not connecting with each other. And the, the ultimate attachment question is, if you see something wrong with me, will we still be have a relationship or are you going to dump me if you see my, my faults? And yeah. there, now, if our main example is going to be our pastor, right? Mm -hmm. He's got to answer, he or she has to answer that question. Okay, now, if I show you any of my weaknesses, how do you feel about having a weak pastor? Hmm. And the average answer is you'll be shot. Yeah. No, we don't have a weak pastor. So therefore, uh, I went one time to Brazil to talk about this. And the, after a couple of days and I had some of the confidence of the leaders, they said, you know, we have all these people coming down from the U.S. telling us, about all their spiritual victories. We know how to have spiritual power and victory, but we don't know what to do with our weaknesses because no one in the U.S. has them. They just come <laughs> here with their victory factor yeah. stories, you know? So that tells us something, doesn't it? I had a friend once tell me that he would never go to a dentist that didn't that wasn't able to brush his teeth well, and so he didn't want to have a pastor who had weaknesses because the pastor should be the one that has it all figured out so he can teach everybody else. Yep, and if it were all about uh, making better choices and having truth, that theory would work. Right. But if it talks about building an attachment with people who have flaws and weaknesses, now that's actually what God does, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So he looks at us and he goes, you're pretty pathetic examples of what I created. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to love you anyway and form a relationship in which you will learn to be who I meant you to be. And yeah. uh, it's a different process, really. Of course, God mm -hmm. isn't in that sense. Some of us have trouble relating to him because we say, well, of course, God is perfect. Mm. Uh, yet Paul, oddly enough, talks about the weaknesses of God. 
Um, so, uh, hmm. you know, I think we got some room to explore there, these mysteries. In this episode, Jim Wilder explained that the brain has a fast and slow track. The fast track learns by example and can respond before our slow track is aware of it. In the next section, I will discuss how the fast track brain is conceived in the teachings of Jesus and how we can change the way we think and respond by working with the fast track brain. Michael, I just finished speaking to to Jim Wilder about how the brain has a fast track and a slow track and how God created one side of our brain to process our identity and another side that's kind of logical um, that processes our thought. Now, it sounds like since this is something that God made into our brain, that it would be, we would find examples of that in scripture. Can you think of places in the word where it kind of exemplifies the fast track and the slow track? Yeah, you know, we would we would expect Jesus to ex- uh, exemplify a perfectly synchronized left and right brain, so we see see it perfectly at work in him. Um, you know, the uh, the the fast track areas uh, heavily del- are relational and they're emotional, and hmm. they they uh, depend a lot on our identity. Our identity gets processed. Our who are we connected to? Um, what kind of people we are we in different situations? Mm-hmm. Um, we see this often like in the Sermon on the Mount is a, is a very good description of what we would call the building of a group identity. This is the kind of people we are. Okay, yeah. So like First Peter talks about us being a, this new people that God has created for his glory. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus, when he started preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, most of the people probably didn't understand what he was doing long term. But what he's doing is saying, this is what it looks like to live in my father's kingdom, the kingdom I'm bringing to earth, the kingdom of God on earth. Mm-hmm. And when it touches all sorts of areas of life, but, and even though he's using what you would call the slow track system to communicate because, you know, verbal teaching words, conscious thoughts, a lot of those are more dominant towards the left side of our brain. Um, what he's also doing though, is he's creating this really well-developed and also very specific. I mean, it goes into very specific areas in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, uh, quick quick glances at women and what do we think of, of, of an attractive woman? He goes there. You know, usually mm-hmm. we don't go there in things. Um, you know, he talks about how are we how are we handling our money? How do we give our money? Um, mm-hmm. you know, what what about someone who who thinks they're really good? You know, what about so he's he's kind of given an example. It's not just these big lofty theological ideas, but it's this nitty gritty of how do we live the kingdom of God on earth? What that really does, though, it starts to build into us. And then as we take that and speak it to each other and as we do work in churches around these concepts of what kind of people we are, that starts building together in that group identity and group identity is really what our brain is processing six times a second, trying to figure out who am I in this strange situation I found myself in, you know, like when I got a parking ticket, when I go back to my car, my instantaneous reaction to that, or Mm -hmm. when I get a promotion, you know, it's good and bad, you know, what we think is positive and negative things, or when uh, someone tells a joke or when there's all sorts of things that our identity is just, our bright brain is constantly cycling quickly saying, what kind of a people, what kind of people am I, who are my people and how do they act in this situation? And uh, yeah, these and things actually change as faster than conscious speed, which is the weird thing Jim kept telling me, like, this is faster than conscious speed. And I'm like, wait, if it's faster than conscious speed, then I can't, I can't touch it. I can't change that. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so there's a lot of practices we do that under the kind of under the back behind the curtain starts building this, this identity, building our attachments to each other, building the level of joy we have. All these are things that are greatly affecting this fast track system to be able to, to be in, in a zone where our character is very open to change. Yeah. So when I think of church and like my experience as a youth pastor, I guess I look back on it and I see so many of the the programs and the meetings and the things that we put together were designed for what you and Jim would call a left track yeah. process of let's study the Bible, let's talk about what it means, let's create a kind of a here's what the core principle is and hoping that that right knowledge would lead to right action. Right. But it sounds like maybe that that's only one, one half of the equation. Yeah. Right. Knowledge is very important. So we're not downplaying the importance of having the right facts and the left. I mean, Jesus created the left brain as well as the right brain. So it's very important. More what we're saying is that the knowledge needs to be coupled with, with the right brain factors that, that uh, really activate then the character growing circuits of our brain. As, as, that's my lay terms. Jim would use all sorts of scientific terms to say that, but I kind of put it in lay <laughs> terms. We don't yeah. lose you. We appreciate it. Yeah. So, you know, you would think about things like how often do our churches do we do intentional practices that increase our joy? So for those yeah. of you, for the, the reminder, though, that from the brain's perspective, and we'll find out it's also the Bible's perspective, joy is really kind of what I feel and experience from another person when I can see on their, in their face and in, in their eyes that they're really happy to be with me. Mm. That is like a key uh, factor. It's like a, it's, it's almost like putting gas in our gas tank for discipleship. Um, mm-hmm. Joy is the thing that kind of energizes all the other things we do later. So that's, that's one of the things, big changes after learning, after meeting Jim Wilder and learning how the brain works and seeing examples of it is really the place to start in, in discipleship is to raise the level of joy in people's lives because it's very analogous to filling up your ta- your gas tank with gas before doing something difficult, before driving across the country or, you know, I just drew up, drove up into the mountains this weekend uh, to go on hikes with my wife. But if I'd done that and in my car, if I have a perfectly working car, but if it doesn't have gas in the gas tank, the thing is largely useless to me. Yeah. Even though the car may be a fine, perfect working car. And and uh, joy is very analogous to that. That's one of the fast tracked examples of, um, you know, joy does get built in churches. But what we would say is, is it's something we need to be very intentional about now. As intentional we are is, is filling up our gas tank before driving across the country on a vacation. What are some ways that churches can be intentional about building joy? Because like, like you said, it's not something that we typically think about. We think about like right doctrine and singing like the songs that we sing. Um, but joy is almost like a, a happy byproduct. If things go right. right, how do you, how do you become intentional about joy? So really, joy has nothing to do with circumstances. So I can be I can be joyful when you when you just got a promotion in your job, Jeremy, or I can be joyful when you're a good friend of yours has gotten in a car wreck, is in is in intensive care, because mm-hmm. joy is not. I'm happy that that happened. 
Joy is, uh, Jeremy, I'm glad to be with you, even though your friend is in this and I'm, I'll walk through this with you and I'll, anything I can do. I just want to, I just want you to know I'm with you. Those are very high joy words in a very sad situation. Similarly, if you called me up and said, I just got this promotion I've always wanted. And I'd say, oh, I'm so glad you got that. I'm, I'm rejoicing with you, Jeremy. Again, those mm-hmm. are joy. Joy doesn't depend on good or bad circumstances. What it depends on, it's relational. It's basically saying, I'm with you. And, uh, and we find high levels of the expressions of joy by God towards us. Um, mm. You know, like, in, I think it's in number six, there's kind of this, the classic blessing that uh, the Hebrew people would say to each other. And, and I think Moses was, if I'm not mistaken, was, was asked that they would pray over the people. And it, it would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you. Mm-hmm. And from a neurological point of view, it's really we get the joy, most of our joy we get from the face and the eyes. We also get them from tender words, um, mm-hmm. but it's primarily facial. So one of the things you can do to church in churches is have more intentional time where you're looking at each other in the eyes. You're not staring at each other like weird, but and it can be just a few <laughs> seconds. But letting a person yeah. know you're really happy to be with them and giving them your face for a while. The, that's one of the things I learned when I read through scripture after learning about joy is how important the face is to, to our growth. Now, what you're saying, it seems like there's a couple of fundamental obstacles to that, even from the way that our churches are designed um, architecturally, that you don't really look people in the face very often, depending on which denomination you're in, that Typically, there's not a lot of face-to-face interaction. Yeah, that's an example of churches being designed with the left brain in mind. Um, and a right brain design would be definitely more intentional practices t- to, to have people looking at each other in face and connecting and showing and letting your face light up and even learning what that means. What's it mean that my yeah. face lights up when I see or, or your face lights up? You know, if we're looking at our phones, if we have sunglasses on, if we're distracted and looking around as I'm talking to you. Um, there's a big difference in the neurological circuits versus if you look at me, at least in the eye, hmm. maybe even when I walk in the lobby and say, I'm, I'm really glad to see you, Michael. I'm, I'm, I hope you had a good week. There, that actually is more important than we think it is. Or the beginning of a small group, when people are arriving at your home um, for your small group, greeting them at the door and letting them know, slowing down just, just a few seconds and looking at them in the eye and say, thank you for being here. I'm really glad you're here. Um, and it can, that can even be nonverbal. A lot of joy doesn't require words. And it's actually almost more powerful, and at least to my experience, when someone communicates joy to me without saying a single word, it's very powerful. And mm-hmm. so practicing that, practicing that in our small groups, how to build joy in a way that's um, that we can feel in our bodies. Hmm. And how do you how do you teach that as a as a spiritual formation pastor, how do you teach other people to, I guess, lead with joy? And maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm uh, falling back into the trap when I'm saying you need to teach it. Is uh-huh. it, maybe you need to model it. How do you, how do you transfer? I guess is the best way to yeah, say it. That's a good question. And there is some teaching required because it does help. Yeah. If, you, if you know what people are doing, otherwise they might say, well, why don't we study the Bible right now? Why are you, why are you just greeting everybody when they, you know, we might not understand the importance of it. So the teaching has definitely a, an important role, but you hit the nail on the head. We actually learn a lot more and absorb this kind of right brain fast track um, 
skills, we learn them more by, by absorbing it, by model, seeing them model, by imitating people and seeing it happen. Mm-hmm. So my bright brain likes to see pictures. It likes to see people doing something. So when I see another person, another uh, follower of Jesus who's more mature than I am, and I see him or her doing something that I, I wouldn't be able to do, in the and mm-hmm. stay in the kingdom and stay connected, you know. Maybe they, maybe they're in the lobby and someone insults them, and they reply with a very tender but firm response that's loving and at the same time also isn't humi- self humiliating. And I see mm-hmm. them do that, and I can't do that, but I just see them do that. My brain has already started working on that. You know, that's yeah. being incorporated into my group identity, and I, I have all, all of a sudden have a picture, and it goes in a library in my brain. I said, that's an option in this kind of a situation. Or maybe my brain had never seen that option before because maybe I didn't see that for my parents. I didn't see that growing up and my siblings and good friends and other people. And all of a sudden, this more mature person has given me another library entry. And this is the ground that gets kind of worked in and we start to see this absorbed. And we, and, and the strange thing about this is then we start to see spontaneous changes in our instantaneous reactions. Hmm. That's what and I've that's seen over the last two years. I'll have things happen and, and I'll, and I'll react in a, in a, a calm, peaceful way that I stay myself and I stay relational. I, I don't go into hole or anything or emotional overwhelm. And, um, or if I do, I even know how to recover. But then later I'll think, wow, just a couple years ago, that would have really kind of knocked me sideways. And it didn't, but it's not because I tried, I tried to not react. It was faster than conscious thought. That's faster. That's the weird way the fast track feels when, you know, just in everyday life. Now there's, there's two concepts that Jim had talked about that I wanted to, to dive a little bit deeper into practically speaking. He, he told a story of how he was overseas and the overseas leaders, a little tongue in cheek, were talking about how, the the leaders from the west were were perfect and because they only talked about their victories yeah. and that they never taught them how to suffer well how to display their weaknesses yeah what's the role of weakness in fast and slow track and particularly in developing as mature believers so that's a very deep question um very good question um, so one of the things I learned, one of the most uh, ground-shaking concepts I learned from Jim is, as far as character change is, is that we change much more according to who we love rather than um, than the truth we know or how hard we try to behave mm-hmm. well. Um, really who we love, who we're attached to, you know, the specific way he likes to describe it because this, it, 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 it describes better the way the brain processes this is the people we're attached to, you know, you think of like a family relationship. I'm attached to my wife. I'm attached to my children. You know, we can go through ups and downs, but they will always be these dear people to me. Um, so the people we're attached to are, are are the ones that are going to most change us and change each other. And it also creates an environment where change is very likely. It's like a zone where transformation is common when we have deep, deep attachments to each other. Mm-hmm. Well, sharing weakness plays into this because one of the ways we build this deep, this community and make it a deep, a community of deep, deep attachment, fam, family level bonding is when mm-hmm. we um, have, when our community, we, we uh, share weakness and it's, it's a safe community to share our weakness. So we don't just share our successes, 
Um, but we regularly share our failures, our uh, disappointments, our emotional sadness and difficulty. Um, we share uh, examples of when we don't act like who we really are. We kind of forget who we mm. are. Um, and one of the killers of this kind of an environment is when we fi- try to fix each other. And that's why a lot of a lot of this attachment level in churches will, can, will stay shallow is that if it's an environment where people then respond to your shared weakness with, you know, an answer or a, even a Bible verse mm-hmm. or some advice, or I know a good counselor that right there may, it, it, it lowers the level of our attachment and, and it kind of hurts the transformation zone of that community. Hmm. So people actually need to be taught this as well. This is where the teaching comes in is this is how we share weakness and hit. This is how we receive weakness. Uh, we don't primarily hmm. receive it with advice. And if there's ever, ever a time that we think about giving advice, one of the, one of our rules for our small group is that we, we don't get give advice and if we feel a very strong urge that we think might be the Holy Spirit kind of nudging us, you know, we'll always ask the person and say, hey, are you, are you looking for some advice here? Or do you just want me to sit with this problem with you and just kind of be with you in it? And mm. if the person says, no, I just kind of want, I just want to talk about it and want, I want you to be with me, then we hold our advice. Yeah. And a lot of times we, we fix people because we think that's the way we change, um, but but also a lot of times it's because we're nervous and we're actually dealing with our own fear. Yeah. You know, this person's weakness is making us feel uncomfortable. And so we need to come up with a nice tidy solution. Otherwise I feel uncomfortable with, with this weakness. You just told me. I definitely feel that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think for me, I felt pressure as the pastor that I, I felt like I was supposed to have all the answers to their questions that, I should have a Bible verse and a, a sermonette ready to go that could wipe away all the problems. Yeah. And it sounds like responding in that way can actually undercut the vulnerability of the community and make it so that we need, we feel even more pressure to, to show a version of ourselves that we're not. Yes, and this is really the opportunity, though, that that's, that leaders in the church have to model it. Hmm. You know, they should be, hopefully, would be the ones that are leading out with their weakness. Mm-hmm. Because that not, not only builds the level of attachment and love we have for each other, but it's also training people how to do that, what it looks like. And they're showing them that this is a healthy thing, not an un- unhealthy thing. Because mm-hmm. most I know what I did most of growing up, what I learned to do is to hide my weakness because it mm-hmm. can be used as ammunition against me. Right. Mm-hmm. And the church in its best light is a place where we share our weakness and, and what we receive is tenderness. Hmm. And that builds this family, family level relationship. And we see this even in the way the brain grows. We see, you know, even infants when they go into some sort of like crying spell or when they're angry or something, you know, if the mom can get down and look at their child and said, are you angry? Oh, man, you look angry. I'm sure glad to be here. Let's work on this together, okay? So that mom right there is express, expressing anger, is, is matching the anger of the child, but expressing joy at the same time. Like, I'm really happy to be with you in this, and we're together in this. Hmm. And she's doing the neurological work, whether she realizes it or not, to build her child's brain to be quite resilient. Mm-hmm. 
well, you know, the spiritual leaders in the church, this is supposed to be, our church is supposed to be a spiritual family and actually function with that level of bonding. Yeah. And and the more mature Christians, the ones that are further down the road than you and I, we can see them do this. We can see them share their weakness. We can see them do things that we don't do. And that that's what that's what changes us. But as long as we do the image management that Dallas Willard talked about, where we're trying to protect our image, then there's always going to be a pretty low ceiling on the amount of growth we see because this we're keeping our brains from begin, getting into the zone that it was designed to be in in order to to change. And I think this is the the problem that we we want to talk about of how do we create a church environment that growth like this is possible, that weakness is able to be received with tenderness, that we're able to kind of pull down the image management side and be our real selves and and really grow. And I think that's that's going to be the topic of the future podcast episodes. Um, yeah, that sounds interesting. And, you know, we see this in Jesus' life in spades. So that's the, that's the, one, that's the one person we can imitate in every situation. You've been listening to the Other Half of Church podcast, a podcast at the intersection of brain science, theology, and church life. To learn more about the book by Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks, visit theotherhalfofchurch.com.